Good evening and Merry Christmas to you all. Okay, that didn't, that didn't work. Let's, uh, so I'm glad you guys will have a Merry Christmas. I won't, so uh, no, one, no one wants that apparently. Merry Christmas. Now, I get the merriest of Christmas because I only give you one, but I got like 30 back, so I win. And that's what's important at Christmas. Um, I am so glad that you are here to sing and rejoice of the coming of our Lord and Savior as a baby, the incarnate deity, to dwell with us so that we might have redemption through his blood. Uh, It is a good time to gather to sing songs on the eve of his birth. That birth on December 25th, uh, as the early church saw it, was purposeful. It was not because of winter. It wasn't because of the winter uh, solstice, but it was rather because nine months have ticked off since we celebrated Easter or thereabouts, and the early church thought that it would be right for the conception of Jesus to take place at the same time of the year that his death did, and that is how we've ended up with December 25th as the date of Christmas. So it is right for us to gather to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ into this world, and to do so primarily through song. We sing at Christmas time. It is a time of great rejoicing, and the ultimate expression of that sort of rejoicing is in song. This evening we are going to be running through the book of Luke and our scripture readings. Our sermon is the next stop in those scripture readings, and it is therefore right that our stop for the sermon this evening is indeed in a song. And so if you have the book of Luke open, uh, please look at the song of Mary and her Magnificat, beginning here in Luke 1, verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. This is the word of our God. This is Mary's very famous Magnificat. That word Magnificat comes from the Latin translation of the first phrase of this where Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Magnificat anima mea dominum. I said that all wrong because I don't know Latin, but uh, it's a good shot anyway. We don't care about the Latin here. It is a very wonderful song of praise. It's well known around the Christmas season. Mary begins by saying, this is a song of rejoicing to the Lord. She starts where all of us start. Not how the Lord is good in an abstract way. Not that the Lord is good on his own, that he is the embodiment of what is good. But she starts where the vast majority of us have to start. The Lord is good to us. God is good to us. He has done great things for us. Certainly we can't stop just by assuming that God's goodness to us is all that there is, but God is good in and of himself. But we always start here. She knows that this goodness was paid to her because she was a woman of humble estate. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And indeed, she was very humble. 
If not for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to her, she would never have been known. She was a fairly no-name woman from a fairly no-name town. It's doubtful that we would even know of the town of Nazareth if not for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, God looked on her humble estate and blessed her with this child, which was an odd bit of blessing. And certainly Mary can see beyond the turmoil and the tumult of her own life. Out of wedlock, children are not so much looked down upon in these days. And certainly the stigma of being one who is not married and found to be with child would have hung over her for quite a while, and especially in a small town like the one that she was raised in. But Mary is a wise woman. She sees beyond simply what the world says and listens better to what the angels have told her. She will be, therefore, blessed by all generations that come from this. We do indeed call her the most blessed of the women, of any woman, to carry the very incarnate God in her womb, to be the one chosen out of all of history, to bear him and to raise him as her own, the one who would save all of Israel, the coming Messiah, to be that mother. She is ultimately the Eve that finally bears the seed that will strike and crush the head of the enemies of God. This is her lot. God has looked on her humble estate and he has blessed her. But she is also then right to assume that this is not a one-off activity for God. God is not simply a God who has looked on her this one time, one time looking on somebody who is humble, who is of low estate, and raising them up. Instead, as she goes on in her song, she notes time and time again that this is the routine action of God. This is the nature of who he is. Mercy is to those who fear him. Continually through this, it is the mighty, the rich, and the proud who have taken from them that which they think they have. And instead, God gives to the poor, the humble, and the hungry, those who serve him, much good and blessings. All of this, she says, is a display of God's powerful arm and indeed an extension and a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. But why? Why does God, in Mary particularly here, but in all of his promises to Israel, always do this? Why is he always exalting the humble, taking Abram, who no one knew of, and telling him that he would be the father of many nations, taking David, who wasn't even thought of to line up when, when Samuel comes and says, give me all of your sons so that I can find the one who will be the king. Well, Jesse didn't bring forward David. David was number eight. He was out in the fields, overlooked, small, humble. Continually, God exalts the humble and brings low those who are proud and powerful and mighty. This isn't the way the world works. We don't exalt those who are humble. We don't exalt those who are low. We exalt those who have done great things. We exalt those who have done wonderful things. Why doesn't God lift up the mighty and the powerful for their accomplishments and their merit and their work? It's simply this. God always works this way because this is always how sin is overturned. 
Sin has cast the world upside down. The powerful and the mighty, the rich, ought to look after those who are poor and of humble estate, who are lowly and have needs and cares in the world that they do not know of. But that is not the world that we inhabit. The vast majority of the world, the vast majority of the history of the world shows that those who are in power abuse that power and use that power for selfish gain instead of doing what they ought to do, which is take care of those who have not amongst them. They crush those below them for their own good. Sin has led to oppression and violence, to discord and disharmony. But God has brought himself to bear on this problem. And in Jesus, he comes to make, as the song says, his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And so he does this by overturning the world's priorities. We can look down at the poor, the meager, the disadvantaged, and the weak. We tend to exalt the powerful, the mighty, the rich, and the great, those who are boastful and braggadocious before God. But God does not do this. He exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. He helps the poor and takes away from the rich. This is not just a feature here in Luke. Luke has already painted this picture of God and specifically painted this picture of God in Jesus Christ. Angels announcing the birth of Jesus Christ and the bringing of that birth into the world did not come to a princess, but to Mary. They didn't come to Herod. They didn't come to Caesar. They didn't come to any of the great kings of the world to announce this birth, but to shepherds. They came not to the religious leaders, not to the high priests, not to the elders, but to a lowly priest named Zechariah. And in the life of Jesus, this pattern continues. Jesus who will be sending out his apostles in his name, the people that he will gather to him, keep closest to him that he might change the world through them, does not bring in the religious leaders and the elders, the exalted ones who are righteous in their own eyes, but rather he brings in fishermen and tax collectors. He makes his friends, not amongst those who are powerful, but sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. These are those who see his salvation. He was born to become like them, not to become sinners as they are, but to take on the very sin that is in their lives. He has come to die for them, that he might free them from their sins and pay the penalty for their sins. This is the gospel. This child was born not just to rule, not just to lead, to be king and God and sacrifice. This child was born to die, to give freedom to any and all who would call upon his name. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person fails to do what they ought to do before God because they fail to love at the heart of the matter God as he ought to be loved with every ounce of effort and strength that we have. And because we have all gone away, we all need a Savior. And so Jesus Christ was sent to overturn the sin of the world and to overturn the sin in our lives so that we would not die before God but could live forever with him. 
It is his sacrifice, his perfect life, and his death, and his resurrection that pays the price for our sin. And that good news is indeed good news for all. Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jews might have thought that they had a corner on the market when it came to God. But in Jesus Christ, that has exploded. The gospel is for all, Jew or Greek. Women are no longer second-class citizens. They are afforded equal opportunity in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you are a slave or you are free. You are brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes out to all people. The gospel message goes to kings and it goes to peasants. It goes to slums and it goes to mansions. It goes to each and every person who is here tonight hearing the message of the gospel. Whether you've heard it a million times or you've heard it once, this is an opportunity to respond to it. The gospel message is without the Lord Jesus Christ paying for your sins and you trusting and believing in him, you will be cut off from God forever. There is but one escape from your sin. The message is true for all people in one sense. But not in another. It's not for everyone. The gospel has but one thing that you have to have, and that is to know of your need. So it's not for everybody. For those who are self satisfied, who are self reliant, for those who are rich and powerful and mighty, who think that they need nothing of religion or they need nothing of Christ or they need nothing of help, the gospel is not for them. The gospel is never for the proud. It is never for the exalted ones. It is never for the powerful. The gospel is for those who are poor, in the words of Luke, in the words of Matthew, who are poor in spirit. It is for those who are downtrodden. It is for those who know the great need they have. And not just the gospel. The songs that we sing are not for the proud. They're not for the arrogant. They're not for the rich. They certainly aren't for the powerful. Herod does not sing these songs. Caesar doesn't sing these songs. They're not for the haughty, for they speak of the Savior, one who has come to help and to give aid and succor to those who need it. Friends, this song that Mary sings, the songs that we sing, they're the songs of sinners, of the poor, of the despondent. They are the songs, frankly, of the humble, of the lowly, of people who are looking for a better place than this to call their home forever, who are looking for what kind of God might fill them and exalt them and help them in every way that they need help. 
These are the songs that are sung by people who are looking for a savior. And hallelujah, they have found one. For today we sing of a savior born to us. A child in the weakness of flesh, humble and lowly and meek, born not into power, not to princesses, not to princes, born not to people who are mighty or powerful, but born to a poor virgin and her carpenter husband to bring salvation to the world. These are the songs we sing. So, with the angels, let us sing Alleluia to our King. Christ, our Savior, is born. Let us pray. Father, help us to be humbled tonight before the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let our voices be lifted in praise and magnify his holy name. If we are proud, humble us, even now in this place. We ask this for the good of our souls and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.